We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, but I want to invite you to find 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we begin. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then we'll get on to Matthew chapter 4. We've been shadowing Jesus, our coming King, from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth to the Jordan in his baptism and to the wilderness in his temptation. And now back to the region of Galilee where we will consider this morning the preaching of the king. And this, I trust, will help prepare the way in the next coming weeks to consider Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We might be in that sermon a couple of weeks uh, going through that, but um, this is not a series through Matthew so we will not be in Matthew forever. Now, I hope that your ears are not itching this morning. Because if you have itching ears, they are not going to be scratched at Gateway Baptist Church. At least I hope they never will be. Itching ears is the image that Paul uses to refer to those who yearn to hear teaching and preaching that only makes them feel good, teaching that tells them they're important, that their views are full of value, teaching that affirms as good the life they have already chosen, teaching that calls for no repentance from sin. And preachers and teachers who deliver this kind of drivel inflate themselves and their ministries and sometimes manage to walk away with piles of money by scratching thousands of ears that are itching for some kind of spiritual or religious experience to help them feel better about themselves, but the message is devoid of the truth of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, we find a text that I think should be the rallying cry for every preacher of the word who is still willing to hold forth the living word of God lovingly and passionately and call people to faith and obedience through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, who we just read in Colossians, prays for an open door for the word, says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready. That means ready to preach in season and out of season, whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Paul tells his young protege, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul says here that the passionate and faithful preaching of the truth is urgent because there is a window of opportunity that is closing. He says the time is coming when, 
when people will not put up with teaching that is doctrinally rich, when they will reject preaching and teaching that challenges their worldly passions, when they will not abide proclamation that runs contrary to the winds of the culture and the ideology they cling to. In such a culture, the Joel Osteens and Paula Whites of the religious culture thrive. And in such a culture, if we want to share Jesus with the world, we are told we had better do it in a way that makes people feel comfortable. This is the approach, just as one example, of the He Gets Us ad campaign. Now you're all laughing. Somebody brought this up with me this morning. I said, I didn't even know you knew about this. If you watch the Super Bowl, you might have known about it. A couple of years ago, this organization began sharing on social media and television uh, to get people interested in Jesus by presenting him in a non-confrontational and inviting way. And let me preface this by saying, I'm not just trying to bash on this one particular group, but it's a, it's a great example of what the culture is bringing in terms of how to share Jesus without being confrontational, itching a lot of ears. They asked the question, how did the story of Jesus, the world's greatest love story, get twisted into a tool to judge, harm, and divide? How do we remind people the story of Jesus belongs to everyone? Well, their answer really is, we show Jesus belongs to everyone by making it appear that Jesus is exactly like one of us. He gets us, uh, ran uh, two Super Bowl ads recently. This is one of them here. I didn't have the volume on on purpose. Uh, they paid $17.5 million to run uh, these ads. Uh, I was going to think, you know, they could have just run one of them. We could use the rest of the money here, I'm sure, and maybe do more with it. But the ad depicts ordinary people playing the part of Jesus, washing the feet of those who would have been shunned by ordinary Christians. And the message is that Jesus gets us as we are because he is just like one of us. Christianity is not a message of hate. It's a message of acceptance to all because Jesus gets all of us. We are the us in Jesus. You can go to the He Gets Us dot com website, by the way, and watch dozens of these kinds of ads. One of the most popular that they ran, I think, last Christmas tells the story of a teen girl. Now listen, a teen girl who became pregnant with her boyfriend, and after being shunned by her family, the boyfriend decided to support her. And when the baby came, they didn't have time to get to the hospital, so the boyfriend helped her deliver the baby, and it says, they laid him in a manger. And then it shows us these words, Jesus was born to a teen mom. That's why he gets us. He gets all of us. Now, I suspect that this ad campaign is as much about telling the world that Jesus loves them as it is about telling the world that Christians don't hate them. Because in the social climate, Christians are often accused of being haters, hating this group and hating that group. And he gets us as trying to say, look, we don't hate you. We're just like you. And Jesus was just like you also. And he loves people just, uh, he loves people because they were like him. 
They state, we hope to remind everyone, including ourselves, that Jesus' teachings are a warm embrace, not a cold shoulder. That he didn't let this, uh, let pro this or anti that opinions prohibit him from seeing the value in all people. And maybe by saying this, they think, and maybe by communicating that, he gets us, will cause unbelievers to take a second look at Jesus and see that those who follow Christ are not so bad after all and believe that Jesus really does love them. And if you read through in their entire website, you'll find that they claim to believe, some of them at least, that Jesus was human and divine and that he rose from the dead. But there's no mention of the cross, no mention of atonement, no salvation, no repentance. Their stated goal is to work together relentlessly to share the transformative power that unconditional love, forgiveness, and sacrificial generosity have to change us. The power of all of these things to change us, our families, our communities, and our countries. Now, I'm afraid that if this is as far as it goes... This is the essence of liberal theology, and it's nothing new. It's a Jesus with no gospel. Unconditional love and forgiveness and generosity alone never changed anyone. The only thing that changes a person is faith in the death of Christ for sin and his resurrection, a sacrifice that was motivated by love. And transformation is first and foremost a change from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light. And such were some of you, Paul says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6.11. Jesus doesn't get us, he redeems us, he changes us, he makes us holy. And really, my only point this morning is that this approach to sharing Jesus and others like it will itch a lot of ears because it strives to be unoffensive and even attractive to a woke social justice sensibility that we have in our culture. But our culture has lost its moral senses. Do you think that this is the way Jesus himself ministered to people? that he never confronted sin, that he never challenged anyone's life choices, that he never warned of coming judgment? Do you think that the pictures that depict Jesus as this, you know, white, European, feminine-looking, soft-spoken man who went about uttering words of wisdom, blessing the children, helping the outcast, never raising his voice, is that what the New Testament gives to us? I'm telling you this morning, no, Jesus was a preacher. He proclaimed truth to his culture. He loved people. He loved them with a love we will never comprehend. And yet he never overlooked sin in order to love. Jesus did what Paul tells Timothy to do. Jesus reproved, he rebuked, he exhorted, which is, which is not just exhortation, but also encouragement with complete patience and teaching. In Matthew 4, we see the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Now notice verse 17, from that time, from what time? the time that Jesus went to Galilee and lived in Capernaum, the time when he began his public ministry, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Jesus was a preacher. This is how he begins his entire ministry. And by the way, we can go to any gospel and see this same thing. When Jesus begins his ministry in Mark 1, Verses 15 through 14 through 15, Mark writes that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 4, 17 and following, Jesus even enters the synagogue in his hometown to announce the start of his ministry. And he applies Isaiah's words to himself when he reads the scroll and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim, that is to preach liberty to the captives. And the first time Jesus ministers publicly in John's gospel, and John is a different kind of gospel. We see uh, smaller conversations in John. But the first time we see him ministering publicly, he's not uh, preaching before he's overturning tables and scattering those who were defiling the temple. And then he cries out, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You say, how do you know that Jesus was really preaching that day? Because his disciples saw his passion, and it brought to their minds words from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus' adrenaline was pumping, and his righteous ire was raised as he defended the house of God. Jesus was a fiery, authoritative, zealous preacher. In fact, the very word preach that we see here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the root keruso, it's a word that means to proclaim with passion and conviction, like a herald faithfully calling out the words of the king who sent him. I want to examine Jesus' preaching in Matthew chapter 4 because I think that we see in his preaching ministry, even though there's, there's not a lot of content about it, but in the things that we read here, uh, we see Jesus' ministry as compared to preaching today. And we realize that preaching today has really fallen on hard times. We, we should praise God that in many churches, the truth is still being proclaimed and the text of scripture is still being preached. And that goes for a lot of churches in the Greenville area where you could go this morning, I think it's an unusual number actually, where you can find preachers opening the word of God and going through the text and trying to be as faithful to the text as they can, uh, bringing out the meaning of the text in its context and laying the, the moral weight of that text upon the hearers. But you go to many areas across the U.S., a lot of you college young people and and young people in general, when you go away, if God calls you somewhere else, you will find out soon enough that theological preaching of the whole counsel of God is actually very hard to come by in general 
in our culture. Because pastors and churches and denominations feel the pressure to cave to the culture, to turn their sermons into engaging TED Talks, or a message of social reform, or some babble that sounds more like psychotherapy than a sermon. Preachers are literally advised these days not to go more than 15 or 20 minutes, not to make it too deep, and not to make it offensive. And this isn't just a message for preachers. Preaching is an event for both preacher and congregation. We're participating in this together this morning. At least I hope we are. The church's view of preaching will impact how we listen to preaching. Is the sermon just the opinion of a preacher? Are we convinced that the Spirit ministers to our hearts as the Word of God is applied and as we sit under the proclamation of it, not just the reading of it, as important as that is, not just the discussion of it, as important as that is, especially in our discipleship groups, but under the, the proclamation, the heralding forth of the Word of God? Do we respond to reproof and rebuke and exhortation as the Word is preached to us? Do we trust what the New Testament tells us about the ministry of preaching? I think there are several important aspects of Jesus' preaching that call us to embrace His purpose and method for preaching and teaching today. And I think we see just a few of them here that I'll look at this morning in the time that we have. What are these important aspects? Well, first of all, we see the place of Jesus' preaching. Where was Jesus preaching? And under what conditions? So look back at verse 12. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had been, in, had been south of Galilee, remember? just north of the Dead Sea, near the preaching and baptisms of John the Baptist. John's message was the same that Jesus was about to proclaim. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But later in Matthew 14, we learn that John had also been preaching against the illicit marriage of Herod Antipas and his brother Philip's wife. These were two of the sons of Herod who tried to murder Jesus when he was a baby back in chapter 2. These are two sons. One of them was married and the other one stole his wife. So Herod Antipas, the one who had stolen the wife, was listening to John preach publicly against his sin. So he had him arrested and, and, and put him in prison to shut him up. We see then that the proclamation of the truth was not something that took place in a peaceful environment. When I drove here this morning, uh, anticipating the fellowship we would have, meeting with some young men in the morning and, 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 and enjoying just the conversation here, and I knew I was going to get up and preach, I, I have not thought anything uh, fearful about this moment. I, I didn't think anybody would arrest me this morning, really that anyone would get that upset, although I never know, you know. Uh, I never got, went through all this, but th- that's not the environment here that Jesus is preaching in. It's not a peaceful environment, an erratic environment. It's a hostile environment. Preaching certain truths could get you arrested and imprisoned in Jesus' day, and it's the same way in a lot of countries outside of the United States. So when John's preaching was silenced in the south, John or Jesus took the message north to the region of Galilee. Verse 13 says that he left his hometown of Nazareth then, 
and went and lived right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's a little town of Capernaum. Some of you have been there. Capernaum is right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. You, you can be standing in the middle of town and you can walk right down to the water in like less than two minutes. Now, you might read this and get the idea that Jesus is trying to get to a safer place so that he can preach uh, the gospel without being arrested like John was, but you'd be wrong if you thought that. Because the truth is, Herod Antipas, who arrested John, controlled two portions of Israel. The first one was on the east bank of the Jordan where John was doing the baptisms, and so he had the authority to arrest him and put him into prison. Guess where the second one was? The second one was up around the Sea of Galilee. By moving to Capernaum, Jesus placed himself in the center of the territory that was under Herod's control. The son of the man who, again, had sought to kill him. But what Matthew highlights for us in this part of Israel was the northernmost part where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali had settled their family centuries ago when they came into con uh, for the conquest of the land. So once again, Matthew connects the location of Jesus with the Old Testament scriptures. Notice here it says that Jesus lived in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are the, the, the territories right above the Sea of Galilee. If you're looking at a map in the back of your Bible or, or uh, Googling it online, that's the territory right above the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. So not only was Jesus preaching in a hostile environment, this reference to Isaiah 9 shows that Jesus was also preaching in a dark environment. Matthew is quoting Isaiah 9.2 from a passage you're very familiar with, especially around Christmas time, this goes on to talk about the coming of the child who was born, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And I've mentioned this before, but there's a reason that this region of Israel was especially dark. This was the part of the land that bore the brunt of the attack of the Assyrians in the 8th century BC when God allowed the Assyrian army to come and capture them and destroy them and lead them back. Not a lot of survivors in the tribes that bore the brunt of the attack. And because of this history and because of the Gentiles moving into that area afterwards and because of uh, the idolatry that was there, this was considered a very dark place. The wilderness territory to the north of Galilee was associated with the god Pan, which some of you know looks like a man but has the hindquarters and legs of a goat and the horns of a goat. But this is not a friendly little creature like in a fairy tale or, or other children's literature that we might see. It, to them, this was a fierce, frightening god of the wild. And everybody had a superstition that Pan was running around in this part of the world. The region was also associated with emperor worship. So there's a lot of darkness here. And most of us, I think, if I can make a comparison, who make our homes in the upstate know about the dark corner in South Carolina, in this part of the world, if you don't ask us afterwards. 
This would be Israel's dark corner, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And yet Matthew says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And it's only for one reason. Jesus began to preach here. He proclaimed good news to the spiritually bankrupt and freedom to those who were spiritually bound. And this encourages us. We're already ministering in a dark environment. And if the trends continue in the U.S., the culture standing against true Christianity, we will find ourselves more and more, I think, in a hostile environment. We, we often hear of biases against Christianity already. The IRS targeting Christian nonprofits, Christians everywhere losing positions, even uh, forcing, being forced to close their businesses because of their beliefs about LBG, uh, what is it? LGBTQ agenda. I can never remember the acronym. Um, then there is the targeting with violent protesting and burning and vandalism of women's centers who are trying to counsel against abortion. A lot of believers running those. Uh, Marty, our own Marty Spurgeon obviously is, is in charge of one of those. Terrible things that go on, hardly ever reported. And we can only expect those trends to grow. If, if people try to tell you, you know, it's always been there and, and things aren't really that bad and, and we can't be the victims and all that, it's true. We shouldn't be victims because the New Testament promises us if we're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, we should expect persecution. But this is the kind of environment that 20 years ago, uh, it, certain trends started happening. People thought, well, it's a little bit of a trend, but not much is going to happen. And now it's full blown. And this is the kind of trending we're seeing now. But apart from those challenges, we are trying to share the gospel in a post-Christian culture and a post-biblical culture. And I'll tell you what that means. It means a culture where a majority of people used to embrace Christian values, at least the values. And they used to have a general knowledge of the Bible. But we can no longer assume that. In fact, it wasn't too long ago we're talking just a few decades, that according to statistics, the vast majority of people in the U.S., if they were completely anti-religious or if they were atheist or worshipped a false god even, there's even paganism in the U.S., they at least became that way after hearing about biblical Christianity and rejecting it. But today, reports show that there are many in the U.S. who now simply grow up secular or anti-religious or atheist or pagan, and they've never even learned about Christianity. The tendency when we're in a hostile environment, in a dark environment, is to compromise the message. Find a subtle way to share the gospel. Trick people into hearing it. Trying to convince them that that we're not all that bad and, and they, should, they should hear about our Jesus. Tickle their ears a little. Make them feel comfortable. Make them feel like us. Get down in the pit with them rather than standing up out in the light so we can bring them out. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus preached. He proclaimed. Because the darkness is only illumined by the light, the light of the world. That light still comes through the proclamation of truth. We should never draw down on preaching. We should never hold it suspect. We should never let the world set our agenda. We need to minister passionately 
and lovingly with the tools that Jesus gave us to minister with. Now, we have to hurry because there's another important aspect of Jesus' preaching that informs our own ministry. And this one is especially important, not just for our understanding of preaching, but as we look forward to looking at Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's important both to those who preach and for those who sit under preaching also. And that is the content of Jesus' preaching. What did Jesus preach? And we see that in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is this? Well, it's obviously not Jesus' full sermon, okay? Otherwise, his, his sermon is going to be relatively short, you know? And that puts a lot of pressure on the rest of us. Uh, no, this isn't a full sermon. It's not even really a title of his sermon. This is a thesis statement of Jesus' preaching. This is, for those of you who study homiletics, the big idea of Jesus' sermon. I'm teaching a course on homiletics this semester. It's a class of 16 men, all at various stages of learning how to preach, taught by a professor who's still learning how to preach. And what I'm teaching them is what I was taught and what those before me were taught, and that is a sermon is at least a message with one central truth. Or one big idea, the big idea this morning is about the, the, the preaching of Jesus and, and, and the fact that we need to learn by his example. That big idea has to be proclaimed. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we will find Jesus' big idea in that sermon. In fact, it's worded differently than the big idea here in verse 17, but essentially, it is the same big idea. The big idea in the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, Jesus is calling his hearers to turn from their sin and false righteousness and to embrace true righteousness by following the words of Jesus. That's one difference between Jesus' preaching and ours. We preach the words of Jesus. Jesus preaches his own words because he's the one with the authority. That is stunning when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, which, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, otherwise, uh, if we don't follow Jesus' words, Jesus preaches to them, they will not be subjects of the kingdom as God promised them. But Matthew's summary of Jesus' preaching here in verse 17 is a little less specific. It still contains, however, the same two elements. Element one, a call to action, repent. Element two, a warning to heed or the basis for the repentance, which is that fact that the kingdom is coming. The call to action is to repent. We studied the baptism of the king in Matthew 3, and I spent a lot of time describing repentance during that, uh, those couple of sermons. Repentance is, in essence, a turning from sin and to God. It's realizing you are on the wrong path in some area of your life, or maybe in every area of your life, if you're not a believer. And turning around to hold by faith the only one who can rescue you. Every time you and I hear the word preached, there ought to be reflection in our hearts before God. This morning, we ought to all be asking ourselves the question, what needs to change? Where do I need to turn? How can I better embrace the path God has for me that he sets out in his word. How can I love God and his will more? 
Jesus' preaching was not simply information. Jesus didn't go around saying, just so you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to bring the kingdom in. And if you happen to be in the market for a king, you know, I'd be a pretty good one if you want to follow me. And by the way, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not what Jesus went around saying. Jesus preached urgently. You had better turn from your sin and embrace me because judgment is coming. It was a loving proclamation of rescue because there is a warning to heed. The warning is the kingdom is at hand. It's going to come, and you do not want to find yourself on the other side of it. Let me give you a full understanding of what Jesus means when he says the kingdom is at hand. It, it, it doesn't seem like much when you just read the, the thesis statement, the big idea. Revelation 19 and 20 can help us here. To John the Apostle is revealed the very moment that Jesus is speaking of when he says the kingdom is at hand. John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. After hearing that scripture, you should see more clearly what Jesus is talking about when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see why he's calling people to repent, to be on the right side of this great event that's part of the climax of human history? Our situation is even more urgent because we're that much closer to this event. This ought to pierce our hearts with urgency, first for our own souls, that we know the Lord and follow Him, and second, for the souls of others. There are very gracious ways to preach and share the gospel with people. We don't go out looking to offend people, and always trying to be confrontational. Jesus is not always confrontational. But we can never compromise the message that Jesus called us to teach and to preach and to share. We've got to get to repentance. We've got to get to faith in Christ. And at the heart of the message is a call to turn from sin and embrace Jesus because judgment is coming. And we're going to see this fleshed out again and again as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're coming very near the end of our time here, and I'm not going to be able to really go in depth here with this last aspect, but I want to look at it for just a second with you. Matthew tells us of the place and content of Jesus' preaching, and this encourages us in our own ministries because we see these parallels between Jesus' day and ours, the growing hostility to the gospel, the spiritual darkness, the urgency of repentance in light of Jesus' soon return. But at the end of this chapter, we find a third important aspect of Jesus' preaching and teaching, and that is the affirmation of Jesus' preaching. How would the people have known that Jesus' preaching was genuine? That he wasn't just another self-proclaimed prophet coming to make a name for himself. We find the answer, I think, in the last paragraph of this chapter. If we can skip down to verse 23, it says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, that's preaching, that's the same word we see in verse 17, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, proclaiming, teaching, healing. If I can contextualize this, Jesus preached the gospel and he lovingly met the needs of the people to whom he was preaching. This is the mark of the true minister of God, a true servant of God, faithfulness to the word and love for people to meet their needs. It's the affirmation of preaching. We don't compromise the message. We hate the sin but we love the people that God has called us to minister to. We really love them. 
like Jesus does. Jesus didn't stand on the hillside and make prophetic pronouncement of judgment and warn people to repent and then retreat into the comfort of a village. He got in there with the people with unique power that he exercised through the Holy Spirit, healing every disease and affliction, it says. It means that he had to get in there with the people. They surrounded him. He had to touch them. These were not the upper crust of society. If you study Jesus' ministry, you know usually the, 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 the outcasts are the ones flocking to Jesus. He's right there with them. He touched them. Just as he was in the Jordan with them, when he came for baptism, so he is sharing their pain and suffering, even as he presented himself as the answer to their pain and suffering. So no wonder that it says his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, that's the region that he was in, and the Decapolis, that's a little bit further south, and from Jerusalem, that's way south, and from beyond the Jordan, from all over Israel, they started to come to Galilee because they heard there was somebody there proclaiming the truth, somebody who cared about them. And they came from every part because here was somebody who not only preached the truth, he was willing to live among the people and meet their needs. And as believers in Christ, we can all speak the truth. Some of us are called to preach the truth, but all of us are called to share the truth. But those who need to hear the truth will often not believe our message until they see it lived out in our lives, the lives of those who are speaking it to them. And the way to live it out is to really love them and to build relationships with them, and to meet their needs. And they will never hear the message unless they are willing, unless we are willing to share it in the first place with them, and to rub shoulders with them, and to live with them, and among them. We can be critically discerning about the efforts of groups such as He Gets Us, and we should. But at the same time, what are we doing to proclaim the gospel to the world? Are we willing to get in there with people and to love them and to meet their needs, yet not compromise the truth? These are important aspects of Jesus' preaching that fuel our own ministries today. Just as we, just as we minister this, to the, the same kind of people and in the same kind of context and with the same kind of content as Jesus himself did, so we have to embrace people as he did and not shrink from our calling to make disciples of all nations. As we continue to see Jesus' message, let's be committed to what God has called us to do to continue to proclaim that same message. Father, we thank you.